this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with My Life and Dancing, written by Maud Allen and published in 1908 by Paul R. Reynolds. Chapter 3 Memories It was about now, I believe, that my first real inspiration for dancing came to me. I had never received dancing lessons, as most of the little girls I knew had, for my spare time outside of school hours and a little recreation was taken up with my music. Unconsciously, however, I drew from nature and its rhythm an abiding sense of peace, and when studying my daily lessons under the trees while others were engrossed in their own affairs, I danced by the brooks and streams with no thought of step, no thought of preconceived rhythms. It was the poetry of motion in the running brooks and the rhythm of the tossing branches that gave me a desire to express something within me by the grace of motion. And while I did not mention it to my mother, I believed that I could go into the country where the masterminds had lived and worked, that I too could demonstrate in the movements of the body the delight of my favorite composers. It was never a pleasure to me to watch a ballet. My mother tells me that even as a little child I once asked her why the little angels and fairies in it had such ugly skin and such blunt feet without toes. In the beautiful pictures adorning the walls of the art galleries, I had always seen fairies and the like, but they looked so beautiful and at ease. I could see them move when I looked with half-closed eyes, and never was there a sharp turning to hurt one's feelings. But at the theatre I saw such ugly ones. They offended my eyes, and when Mother said it was not the real skin, but pink fleshings to represent skin, I was greatly annoyed. "'That is why it is so ugly, then,' I said. "'Skin never looked like that.' And why just represent, why not be as the beautiful figures in the paintings? And twirling on the toe points in the padded, stiffened, pink satin, formless ballet shoe gave me much to think about. I had the greatest difficulty in bringing myself even to think kindly of the achievement, for it is certainly an achievement to do such a feat, however unnormal and utterly senseless it may be. All the light, gay naturalness, the very joy of living, seemed barred from the production. The hearts of these little dancers seemed turned to stone, and fear of the harsh words of the training master and hours of toil seemed the tale told in the hard, stereotyped smile on the little faces. I was unhappy. Many times after I had first seen a ballet, I pondered over the question of the truthfulness of such dancing. Was it dancing, as dancing ought to be, and as dancing was originally conceived? 
I came to the conclusion it was not. To me it was but the rude outgrowth of an art once very beautiful and adored, and to this deformed brainless child the world was paying homage and leaving the perfect beautiful mother to die. I was filled with a longing and a sadness hitherto unknown to me. When it was decided that I should go to Berlin and take up my studies there, I could hardly wait for the time to come. Yet I dreaded leaving my mother and father, my home and my treasures. I remember that when it was settled and my brave, courageous mother was blinking back her tears, I said with the egotism of a very young girl, Some day, dear, you shall come to me over there when I have made you proud of your daughter. How well I remember her answer. If you are the most famous woman in the world, I shall never be able to love you better, for, Maudie dear, aren't you my baby? Then we both forgot for a time that we were going to be brave and different from other women, and mingled our tears as only a mother and daughter can when a separation of many thousands of miles is staring them in the face. Of course the long journey had its charms, and once the tears had been well braved back, my interest awoke, and I was the busy, inquisitive little mite of old. I remember we were blockaded for hours in the great snow districts, it was February, of Arizona. In the middle of the night, the train suddenly halted. No station in sight, my first thought was of robbers. Curiously enough, robberies are almost as numerous now as in the days of mail coaches, and I was ready to cover up my head with the bedclothes in the hope of being overlooked when they looted the passengers. Then all my fears were dispelled by the gay shouts of some fellow travellers who had already opened a snowball battle up the line. It took but a very little time for me to help in the fray, for if there was anything I did love, it was snow and I had not had a good pile of it since we left our Canadian home years before. To me, though, the most interesting part of the journey was the trip across the Atlantic. It was not as eventful as it might have been after the first two days out. On those days we were met by the full force of a terrific storm, which buffeted the great liner about in the angry sea like a cork. One had to fight one's way across the deck, inch by inch, clutching at the handrails all the time. Those of the passengers who remained on deck, a very few, were lashed to their deck chairs and the chairs to the railings. Luckily, I am a good sailor, but I was sadly disconcerted on this day. The first night out brought its trials and tribulations, and also the greatest fairy revel I have ever witnessed. I had dropped off to slumberland when suddenly I was awakened by a terrific thud at my cabin door. The noise was followed by a pitter-patter as of dainty feet, as though someone were executing a light dance just inside my room. I held my breath and peered at the door dimly outlined in the gloom. Fantastic fancies flitted through my brain. The boat rolled and something fell heavily against the opposite side of the cabin. In a dim way, I realized what had happened. I had neglected to see my cabin trunk fastened under the couch, 
and my smaller belongings in safe places, and now all were rolling to and fro across the floor. My relief was so intense that I believe I laughed, and for long I watched the antics of what my imagination had now transformed into dancing fairies with the big trunk, the fairy king, and my bag with its silver mountings, his sprightly queen. It was a gorgeous fete they were holding, in which even Lord Toothbrush and Lady Hairpin played important roles, and to the music of the surging waves and their splash against the cabin porthole, their revels were kept up till dawn. I watched them until sheer weariness forced me into a dreamless sleep, but the next morning, when I had to hunt on hands and knees for every one of my things, recalled all again to my memory most vividly. The storm over, sunshine accompanied us for the rest of the voyage, and delightful it was. Bremerhaven gave me the first real experience of the guttural German tongue. My head grew dizzy and my heart heavy. I thought I should never be able to master such a language. This seemed now to me to be my very next step to take, for during the next few days, we had gone on to Berlin, I realized how lost and forlorn one was without being able to express one's own needs and desires. I almost felt like running away from it all. It did seem so appalling. And when I heard the tiny tots in the streets chattering away as though it were the easiest thing in the world to use these strange-sounding words that seemed to have no beginning and no end, I grew positively jealous. It was those children who gave me the courage to get down to work. I felt so stupid. My reward came, too, very soon. A natural gift for languages and a well-disciplined mind helped me along, and soon I, too, could chatter and joke and be serious in a language that grows in beauty the more you study and progress in it. Long before I had got this far in the German language, however, I had begun my earnest hard study of my chosen instrument at the Royal High School of Music. I look back with pleasure to those years of student life, longings, and ambitions. I loved a good rainy day. Then I threw myself with all my energy into my work, for I did not fear being disturbed by visitors. There was plenty to do, but I was enthusiastic and found also recreation in my many studies. It was in this atmosphere of music, art, and literature that my next five and a half years were spent, and the delights of those student years can never be effaced from my memory. Perhaps to many of my readers, the routine of a music student's life would be monotonous and prove dull reading. The charm of it can only be fully realized and appreciated by the student himself, so I'll refrain from wearying you. Yet I do want to impress upon you that the vie bohème is not what it is usually thought to be by outsiders loud, boisterous, idle, and without thought of morality. Far from it. There is a simple childishness, gay and grave, and a warmth and unity of feeling seldom found in social circles. We learned to live and let live, to be guided by the heart rather than by cold calculation, 
and to divide our last penny cheerfully with our friends. We had, one might say, one purse, and were happy. Our day's work over, we would gather in the concert halls and listen to the works of great masters, played to us by great artists, and we were joyous and sad, yet refreshed and ready to go at our own little efforts again, to work away each day hoping to get a little nearer to our ideals. Alas, how often has a sister student found a companion in tears, the music lying in shreds on the floor, and the little meager German breakfast still untouched. The road to perfection and success are two distinct ones, and very hard and thorny at that, and there are days when one thinks one's strength will not stand the trial, and the little guiding light gleaming in the far distance seems shut off forever. I have gone through such hours, yes, days, when I felt I should have to give everything up and become an ordinary mortal doing ordinary spirit-killing things, and night after night I watered my pillow with tears of loneliness. <laughs>